Welcome to Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, the podcast. Each episode, we'll take you on a deep dive into the connections between global finance and modern slavery and human trafficking. We'll look at all the different ways that the financial sector can harness its leverage to end modern slavery, forced labor, and human trafficking, and bring you a roundup of all the latest developments from ESG regulation to revealing research. What does the world of insurance have to do with forced labour, human trafficking and slavery? The answers may surprise you. On this episode of Fast the Podcast, we hear from Charles Matias, Chief Risk Officer at Fidelis Insurance, and Jasmine O'Connor, Chief Executive at Anti-Slavery International, who have been collaborating on a new approach to tackling modern slavery risks through insurance. We also hear from Butch Pakani, Program Leader at UN Principles for Sustainable Insurance, about where modern slavery risks fit into the larger effort by the industry to grapple with questions of sustainability. But first, to put this discussion in some historical context, I spoke with Professor Robin Pearson of the University of Hull about the case of the Zong, an infamous episode of insurance litigation following a massacre of African slaves off Jamaica, all the way back in 1781. The Zong case became infamous because it went through an insurance dispute that arose from it, went through the English courts, and it became a a kind of a cause celebre for the abolitionist movement in the UK. Essentially, the Zong was an English slave ship that was carrying a cargo, several hundred slaves, African slaves, uh, across the Atlantic when it went off course. Now, this is in November 1781. It went off course. It became becalmed in the doldrums. The captain and the crew began to fear that they were running out of water and provisions. And they took the decision as the ship was insured to, uh, they were not far off the coast of Jamaica, but they didn't feel they could get there. And they took the decision to throw 132 living Africans off the ship to drown on the premise that they would be able to claim the value of those slaves from their insurance policies when the ship got back to England. Of the 133, I think it was, that were thrown overboard, we think that all but one drowned. I think there is some evidence that one slave managed amazingly to swim back to the back of the ship, grab hold of the ship and haul himself on board and then hide. Otherwise, it was um, a frightful episode in what was a horrific trade. When the, the voyage was over, the owners of the ship Took the underwriter uh, claimed on the insurance policy, and the underwriters refused to pay out, and the case went to court. The owners won the first case. The underwriters appealed, and to cut a long story short, it went through the various appellate courts till it finally reached the Court of King's Bench, which is the highest court in the the land, and was the case was heard by Lord Lord Mansfield, who um, was very experienced judge in hearing all kinds of business cases and was probably the most important judge in the 18th century to develop business and commercial law, including in insurance. And Mansfield ruled essentially that the underwriters had no liability, contrary to the first judgment, because the slaves had been thrown overboard as a result not of a peril of the sea, not to save the ship, which was liable under the insurance policy, but as a result of poor seamanship, which wasn't liable under the insurance policies. So the case became famous because the abolitionists took up the cause and said, you know, the captain and crew should have been tried for murder. 
But as far as Lord Mansfield was concerned and the court, English court was concerned, the insurance case was being treated as a normal case under the law of the sea and the Lloyd standard policy allowed payment out for losses due to perils of the sea, due to shipwreck and piracy and so on. But it didn't allow underwriters liability for poor seamanship, which was the the actual reason why the uh, captain and crew panicked in the first place, because they'd gone off route. So what does the fact that the Zong case was handled as an insurance claim dispute really tell us about the routine nature of insurance involvement in those business enterprises that were trafficking human beings from West Africa across to various markets in the Western Hemisphere? The Zong case really just demonstrates what was really widely, already widely known among merchants involved in the trade at the time. Firstly, that the insurance of slave cargoes was a routine. It was regular. It was regularized using a standard Lloyd's insurance policy, which, as I said, mm-hmm. was used for other types of trades as well. Uh, the so-called ship's good SG, the Lloyd's SG policy, was applied to the slave trade with very few tweaks and, and, and amendments to it. The second thing that the Zong case demonstrates, which again, contemporaries knew widely, including, including the judges, by the way, because Lord Mansfield actually refers to this in his, in his judgment in the Zong case, and that is that the slaves were not insured as living persons. They were insured as animate cargoes. They were effectively the equivalent of livestock, of insuring cattle or horses on board ship. And this is a point that historians, many scholars of the slave trade and slavery have either you know, missed or ignored in trying to claim that the slaves had agency, which of course they did. They were human beings. They had agency. They had, mm-hmm. they had the power to resist. They had the power to commit suicide, throw themselves overboard, organize uprisings on board ship. But essentially from an insurance point of view and from the point of view of the slave traders, slaves were on board ship in the Middle Passage from Africa to the Americas were regarded as animate cargoes, the equivalent of of stampeding in a slave revolt. The slaves were essentially the equivalent of a stampeding bunch of horses or cattle, uh, frightened, spooked by lightning or spooked by a storm at sea. So those were the kind of risks that were understood by underwriters and were assured along the same lines as any other animate, animate cargo. They definitely weren't insured as lives for the simple reason that the slave trade insurance excluded the liability of underwriters for the natural death or what, what they called the natural death, or sometimes they use the word spoilage of slaves at sea. So if a slave died from disease or sickness or old age or infirmity, or even if a slave died from refusing to just in, in sheer despair at being taken away from his family and his homeland, and often the underwriters were not liable for those kinds of deaths. You made a reference, Professor Pearson, to an analogy that was drawn between slave revolts and stampedes of livestock. What implication did that uh, kind of exercise of agency have for how claims were handled technically? Well, the premise of underwriting the slave trade was to standardize it, to make it a a routine form of business, of insurance business. And to do that, you had to mitigate the extraordinary risks. You had the ordinary risks of crossing the Atlantic, 
the difficulty of navigating, the difficulty of encountering mid-ocean storms and the doldrum issue crossing, going from the southern Atlantic to the northern Atlantic, the difficulty of currents and winds and so on and so forth. Those are the normal navigational difficulties of shipping at sea in the 18th century. But then you had the additional issue of animate cargoes, be they enslaved Africans or be they horses, cattle, sheep, whatever, on board ship and their ability to damage or threaten the uh, endanger the survival of the crew and the ship while at high sea. So in order to standardize this business and to, in a sense, to try and domesticate it, underwriters introduced various exemption or excess clauses into their insurance policies. One of the most important was the slave revolt excess policy clause, rather, in in insurance policies. We know that about one in 10 slave ships across the Atlantic in the 18th century experienced some sort of slave uprising. About one in 10, in the British British trade at least. And it's interesting that underwriters commonly introduced a 10%, what we now in modern parlance call a 10% excess clause in their insurance policies. That's to say that underwriters were not being allowing themselves to be held liable for 10% of the slave cargo being dying in revolt at sea. So for a £6,000 policy, uh, for example, uh, on, a, on a slave ship uh, with, say, 30, with a value of slaves at around £30 per head, and slaves were valued, quite often valued in insurance policies, uh, with some sort of nominal value of what they would fetch in the market in Jamaica or the, the Caribbean. And on that basis, about 30, 20 to 30 slaves would have to die in a slave uprising at sea before the underwriter's liability for loss would kick in. That was obviously an incentive to reduce slave mortality during uprisings and a device that would protect underwriters from the willful destruction of slave cargoes by cannon or by rifle or by grenades thrown into the hold. Now, that makes very clear, Professor Pearson, that this was quite a, as you put it, routine business, the insurance of these very expensive in their own way business undertakings. What do we know about the the size of this insurance market? Was it a big market compared to the other insurance markets then in uh, operation in, in the UK? Very large indeed. We reckon that the insurance of the slave trade and the insurance of slave produced commodities together So the insurance of ships carrying tobacco, carrying cotton, carrying sugar from the Americas. If you add those two together, the African slave trade and the insurance of ships carrying slave-produced commodities, together they amount to about 40% of the entire business of the UK marine insurance industry by the uh, end of the 18th century. And that's probably about 10% higher than it had been 30 or 40 years earlier. Each of the three main UK slave ports, Bristol, Liverpool and London, had their own kind of networks of traders who, you know, did business with each other, intermarried with each other. I mean, Liverpool is a good example where the families of slave trading firms intermarried, they bought property with each other, they diversified their 
their business portfolios into things like property development, like banking, like mm-hmm. uh, eventually canal building and railways and so on and so forth. So a lot of the profits from core businesses, such as the cotton trade in Liverpool or the slave trade, the profits from those trades were then diffused through these business networks of relatively closely related families into other aspects of the regional economies. You see this very clearly in Liverpool, but you see it to some extent in Glasgow with the tobacco merchants and in Bristol as well. What we do know from our analysis of the Bristol slave trade and their insurance records is that on most policies, you tend to have a lead underwriter, a leading merchant or a small number of leading merchants who would uh, do the bulk of the business. Then there'd be a long tail of other merchants who would come into the the underwriting pool and add their capital into the pool to make. uh, So you could have maybe um, 20, 30 people underwriting a slave ship, of which uh, the majority would perhaps underwrite one ship a year, maybe, or a small number of ships a year, whereas there would be a small number of individuals such as James Rogers of of Bristol who would underwrite multiple slave ships during any given period. So there tended to be a concentrated network of merchants doing both commodity trades and the slave trade and also diversifying through their networks into other types of economic activities. But there'd also be a long tail of other individuals who would join in these underwriting syndicates as a kind of speculation, I guess, for one or two ships, slave voyages every year. And was that uh, approach of diversifying participation, if I could put it that way, in in the underwriting, was that partly a hedging and arbitrage strategy or was it also about involving an array of different actors to, to maintain those social ties as well? The answer is both. It was, there's certainly a hedging aspect to it. Of course, slave ships departing from Liverpool and Bristol had to be filled as much as possible with provisions and with supplies that the ship's captains could exchange for slaves on the African coast. So that required Liverpool and Bristol slave owners and London slave owners for that matter to develop a broad network of suppliers. In Liverpool, for example, they they acquired all kinds of commodities, ironware from Sheffield, guns from Birmingham, textiles from the West Riding. So they acquired a sort of quite extended supply chains for each of these slaving voyages. So that gave them access to much wider pools of capital than they otherwise would have had. So yes, there is a a, a sort of a hedging aspect to it, perhaps, although I'm not sure that uh, certainly before the 1780s that slave ship owners could predict the abolition of the the trade in 1807. Uh, They fought very hard right to the bitter end to keep the the trade legal. So there may be some hedging aspect to it, but there was also the opportunity through their supply chains to to access quite large pools of provincial capital. That meant that provincial ports, Liverpool and Bristol in particular, did not need to have recourse to resort to uh, the Lloyds market very often, or certainly not the big to London Marine Insurance Corporations for additional cover because they mo- for mo- most of the time, as far as we can tell, most of the time they were able to cover the value of their ships and their cargoes from their own resources, from their own networks. Now, Professor Pearson, some who are listening to this <coughs> might say this is fascinating and an interesting historical curiosity, but this was a, another era, an era in which you could legally and lawfully 
insure people as uh, as chattel goods, essentially, and we can no longer lawfully do that. Is that a fair distinction to make, or are there questions raised by your research that resonate with our contemporary experiences of human trafficking, forced labour, and, and the role of the the global economy in producing those kind of terrible outcomes today? A study of the 18th century slave, or our study of the 18th century slave trade, indicates quite clearly that it was possible to ensure it from an underwriter's point of view by offloading a lot of the risk onto the insured. Modern traffickers take risks and they need to mitigate those risks. And if there are means to increase those risks for modern traffickers, then that may be a sort of a you know a policy that's worth pursuing. Anything that can uh, reduce the ability of modern traffickers to standardize and what I called earlier domesticate the business uh, will probably, you know, could well be effective. And indeed, as I think we'll now go on to look at in, in the remainder of this episode, I think we do see some efforts being taken by contemporary policy writers to think about how we can change the incentive structure, perhaps not for traffickers, but for the businesses that might be tolerating or willfully blind to forced labour and trafficking risks deep down in their supply chain, so at you know, the 13th or 14th tier, uh, if there are ways we can change coverage to price in some of the impacts, social impacts of, of that kind of business model, then it might yeah. actually uh, have an analogous impact that you're, you're describing, Professor Pearson. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Professor Pearson. I really appreciate uh, your joining us for Fast the Podcast. Nice to speak to you. So what relevance does that approach have for the contemporary insurance sector? To find out, I spoke with Charles Matias and Jasmine O'Connor. I am very excited to be joined by Charles Matias of Fidelis Insurance and Jasmine O'Connor of Anti-Slavery International. Welcome, Charles and Jasmine, to Fast the Podcast. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Charles, it's often said that if you can't insure it, you can't finance it. Fidelis and Anti-Slavery International have been working on a clause, the Marine Cargo Clause, that tackles this question of insurance coverage for goods made with forced labour. Can you tell us a bit about that clause? Yeah, the aim of the clause is, I guess, twofold. One is to put an onus on the person who is buying insurance, the insured, to comply with all relevant legal and regulatory requirements in relation to forced labour and to do that throughout the period of the policy. But the second consequence of that is that working with other insurers and brokers to institute the clause has raised people's consciousness that this is actually an issue for the insurance industry. And I think there had been a supposition that forced labour, modern slavery were something distant and probably something to do with remote third world countries where there wasn't any particular regulatory regime and that it didn't really touch the insurance business. And working with ASI, we've put together presentations, which I think have a number of people in our industry have found really eye-opening about just how pervasive modern slavery is. 
both in terms of its geographic spread, the number of countries in which it is present, but also the number of industries in which it is present. And so many of those industries, you know, garment trade is a high profile one, but so many industries, building products, you know, gemstones, everything else that we are exposed to through our insurers and that we need to be taking appropriate steps to mitigate the reputational risk to our own businesses that arises from being connected with that practice. So just at a technical level then, Charles, how does that work? You're you're putting the onus on the insured to demonstrate that they've taken the steps to meet their regulatory and legal requirements relating to forced labour, and if they don't, they're not covered? Is that what's going on here? So the clause becomes part of their contract of insurance. And that says that they have to abide by those laws and regulations as applicable. What we can't do is refuse to pay a claim under insurance law. We can't refuse to pay a claim if the breach of that specific clause hasn't directly caused the claim. But there is the concept in marine insurance of something called the illegality of the voyage. And if a voyage is illegal, because it is carrying illegal goods, then there is the potential for the insured to have an uninsured claim. But really, the main purpose here is about consciousness raising and about making sure that that this is something that is in the forefront of insurers' minds. And just as an example of that, we uh, and a number of others felt that this might be a negative point of engagement with clients that you know you're asking them to certify something and to agree to accept local laws and regulations. In fact, we found it a really positive point of engagement with clients and a lot of clients in any number of industries from you know the garment business through uh, manufacturing to services that any number of them have come forward and actually been very keen to demonstrate how they diligence their supply chains around human rights issues. And in fact, just this morning, I've had one of our, our underwriters here tell me that a client has accepted it not just for their marine cargo insurance, but also for their property insurance as well. So there are potential teeth to the clause, but given the sort of vagaries of insurance regulation, it's more about just emphasising to people their duties and responsibilities under existing law and regulation. Jasmine, is this just a UK discussion or something with broader application? It's applicable globally. And I think the point around awareness raising starts a conversation with the industry. And, you know, in the way that you've got this systemic way of raising that awareness through the cargo clause, I think, you know, number one, it gets the conversation happening. I think number two, where you have got jurisdictions where there are increasingly effective laws and policies in action then that's where it can really create, if you like, momentum behind the enforcement and the take-up of those, those laws. Obviously, there are the UK and Australian Modern Slavery Acts. What else do you have in mind? Some of your listeners might know a little bit about the Mandatory Human Rights 
due diligence laws that are, are starting to be seriously contemplated in a number of jurisdictions, and I think kind of most notably the EU. Um, we've been involved in that from the beginning and are actually holding a webinar uh, next week on some of the, the detail of what that law needs to, to hold and what some of the other wider measures that are required within a systemic approach to to ending modern slavery in supply chains. And I think the other bit, if that systemic approach that might be worth just mentioning is of course, import controls, withhold and release orders. And of course, that's uh, you know probably the, the biggest example of that at the moment is probably the US in relation to cotton and other products from Uyghur minority parts of, of China where forced labor has been on an extreme industrial scale. And so we see really this clause and the laws working in consort to actually create the kind of robust systemic changes that we need globally if we're going to really stop this form of slavery in its tracks. And, and just the numbers, you know, as you know, James, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, are extreme. I mean, we're talking about 16 million people in forced labour in sort of industry globally. And of course, we know that that's tip of the iceberg. And of course, we know that that number is set to rise with regard to the kind of COVID context. And so this is a really timely you know, moment for the cargo clause and the kind of legal environment that we need. Indeed, Jasmine. And you mentioned there the, the withhold release order system of the US Customs and Border Protection. Uh, the action that it's taking, for example, to detain goods being imported by, we know, for example, Uniqlo, is that kind of action one of the strong incentives for take-up of this cargo clause? Or should we be paying more attention to some of the positive incentives that you mentioned, Charles, around differentiation of products on ESG grounds, responsible insurance type grounds? Where do you each see the the push for action on on this really coming from? Personally, I'm always a favour of carrots and sticks belts and braces on this one, because, you know, at the end of the day, we have got to shift the needle and make business about doing good, you know, and that includes reforming business models and strategies, because, of course, you know, those can drive harm if they're not considering the people in the business. But I think from my perspective, it's carrot and stick. You can't really have one without the other. And I do hope that the sort of combination creates a race to the top. I'm certainly seeing that in the in the in, you know in this industry, in the insurance industry, with the leadership of, of Fidelis and some other industries as well. I think. I think that's exactly right, Jasmine. That beating people over the head is is you know people dig their feet in and and push back, and you have to create incentives for people to do this. And I think. What we're seeing at the moment is a very strong incentive for the financial services industry more broadly to become positively good ESG actors. And there are any number of statistics that show that there is a direct correlation between firms' performance and their commitment, their actual commitment, not their verbal commitment, their actual commitment to ESG. And that is creating momentum 
throughout financial services, particularly in, in insurance. But most of that focus, I think, to date has been on the E part of ESG. And, you know, we've seen in the insurance business the move to get insurers to boycott uh, insurance for coal plants and coal projects, which has had some notable successes. But I think it is it is dawning on people that the S part is just as important and that, you know, remediating human rights abuses and trying to exclude participation in facilitating human rights abuses is every bit as important as trying to mitigate carbon impacts. So I think you know exactly right this is carrot and stick it's it's consciousness raising but it is definitely riding a wave that is pushing all of us towards that goal charles picking up on that do you think that there are specific lessons about how to mobilize the sector from its journey on understanding and and managing climate risk? Are there lessons about how the sector has mobilised and digested what it means effectively to to intermediate climate risk that can be applied here in relation to modern slavery and forced labour? Without a doubt, James, we have definitely seen, and again, let's talk about coal, the Adani coal project has hit a really serious hurdle because a number of NGOs have engaged with insurers and had publicity campaigns where they have come and said to insurers, are you or are you not supporting this project? And it's become untenable for insurers to to support this project from a reputational point of view. And so I think there is absolutely a read across there. And again, to Jasmine's point, we would very much like the industry to accept the need to deal with human rights issues and modern slavery without the need to being shamed on the front pages of the Financial Times or, or wherever it may be, or having protests outside their office door. But, you know, insurance doesn't necessarily have a great reputation, particularly after COVID. It's, that's probably even more the case. So from a reputational risk point of view, we are very sensitive to issues that can create bad publicity. And I think that in and of itself is a driver towards good behaviour. So yes, I think there is a read across from what's been happening over issues like coal and other environmental issues as well. Jasmine, what do you think that looks like? What, What happens next to strengthen the insurance sector's engagement with these issues? Well, I think you know, we come, we come right back around to the beginning, which is actually education awareness. And I think, you know, if we are, if we're looking at legislation, it, it's great because it creates a level playing field. And so it doesn't sort of disadvantage someone for, for doing good and doing right, but actually creating the awareness and understanding. So we keep that, that leadership moving and we build that movement. And certainly with this clause, you know, we're, we're looking to, to work with Fidelis to kind of raise that awareness, to bring the lived experience into the boardroom so that people understand the impacts of the decisions that are being made you know, in capital cities across the world on the lives of, of real people somewhere right down, you know, a multi-tiered supply chain. And I think from our perspective, you know, working with Fidelis to get the sign-ups 
from across the sector, from all of the big players to make sure that everybody's taking this this cargo clause seriously and is committing to it. So really that combination really of of creating that awareness and driving for those those sign-ups to the clause so that we get we get that that moving and in a sense that it, we reach a tipping point where there's a point of no return and, and incidentally that also puts pressure on government to get the legislation in place because the, the the oft you know heard remark is business doesn't want it and actually we see across our work that often business is ahead of the curve in terms of wanting some of this this legislation to be in place. They don't want to be tied up in red tape. You need coherence. You need smart legislation. But actually, the leaders in in these industries that are already doing it, you know, like Fidelis and like others that that are driving these issues forward, don't want to be in a position where actually the law is enabling others to sort of get away with you know, quite literally murder in some cases. And so I think there's that that combination of creating the awareness, making sure that we get the sign-ups, and from ASI's point of view, pushing for that sort of legislative environment to support the good and to support uh, industries like the insurance industry, but to make it obviously industry-wide in terms of its uptake. Now, one last question, if I may. You both stressed the importance of awareness raising. And Jasmine, in your last answer, you also mentioned the importance of awareness raising, particularly in boardrooms. Several of the relevant pieces of legislation here require directors to sign off on modern slavery reporting and and the work that you and your colleagues have been doing, Jasmine, around the European discussions. An important part of that is, is this whole question of whether there'll be a change in directors' duties. Is there scope to bring this kind of discussion into directors or officers' insurance or indeed other product lines? Charles, you mentioned uh, an underwriter moving to take this kind of risk into its property insurance product lines. Where else might we see these issues arising in the future? Well, I think you're right. I think we are going to see ESG issues becoming a consideration for people who are insuring directors and officers. We don't do that. It's not a line of business we underwrite. But it is clear that if you are considering the liability of a director or officer of a company, you have to include in that assessment of that liability, are they causing harms through their conduct of business? So, yes, absolutely. This is a live issue right across our our sector, I believe. And absolutely, I'd agree with that. And I think we're just in the foothills of this legislation and what it really means. And I think from our part, you know, we are we are trying to engage in a way that brings all the different stakeholders in into the room as we're looking at what a mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence law might mean. So we are looking at engaging with industries. We are looking also at engaging with survivors of of modern slavery and those who have got lived experience. And I think from my perspective, when you bring that human reality into the mix and you get that lived experience advising on what the kind of legislation needs to look like, you know, then I think you get legislation that, that works. 
Well, as you said earlier, Jasmine, there's clearly huge potential for the insurance sector to be a lever here to help move the market, but also that this work is intrinsically important for the sustainability of the sector itself. So thank you both for the leadership that you and, and your colleagues are providing in this area and for all the, the terrific work you're undertaking. Best wishes and best of luck for it. Thank you. Thank you. Both Charles and Jasmine emphasised that the move to factor modern slavery risks into insurance processes is part of a larger shift towards what's sometimes called sustainable insurance, insurance that factors in environmental, social and governance factors. To learn more about that shift and where modern slavery fits in, I turn to Butch Bakani, Program Leader of UN Principles for Sustainable Insurance. Butch, welcome to Fast the Podcast. Hello, James. Good to be here. Great to have you with us. Butch, tell us, what is PSI? PSI stands for the Principles for Stable Insurance. It is a global sustainability framework for the insurance industry that covers the entirety of the insurance business from its core business on understanding and managing risk to insurance, claims, marketing, all the way to investment management. So it is a set of principles that covers a wide range of environmental, social, and governance issues or sustainability issues. And this could encompass anywhere from climate change to biodiversity loss and ecosystem degradation to pollution to uh, human rights violations, social and financial inclusion, through to governance issues such as uh, corruption and bribery. So these principles were developed by the global insurance industry in conjunction with the UN, and they were launched at the UN Conference on Sustainable Development in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil in 2012. Uh, They've been endorsed by the UN Secretary General and also by insurance CEOs from around the world. And these set of principles have led to the largest collaborative initiative between the UN and the insurance industry. As we speak right now, uh, we have um, over 180 insurance organizations that have adopted the principles for stable insurance around the world. They represent uh, at least a quarter of world premium volume and over uh, 14 trillion in assets under management. So this is the PSI and a company can implement the principles on its own. At the same time, as a collaborative initiative, it has led to a range of collective efforts by the insurance industry and the UN to address different sustainability issues. Great. So is it related to UNPRI, the Principles for Responsible Investment, that many of our listeners may have heard of? Yes, it is. So the PRI was developed also by the UN, together with institutional investors, such as insurance companies and pension funds. And the distinction between the PRI and the PSI is that we know that the PRI is a framework for investment management that already applies to one of the things that an insurance company does, which is to invest. However, all insurers are investors, but not all investors are insurers. Mm -hmm. So an insurance company's core business is about managing risk and about insurance. And so by virtue of them being an insurer, they are also an investor. And that's the reason why if you look at 
the principles for stable insurance, in particular principle one, it covers there the entirety of the insurance business, including investment management. And when it comes to implementing investment decisions, it points to the implementation of the principles for responsible investment. So one can say that the PSI is a wider framework that covers everything that an insurance company does, but links to the PRI specifically when it comes to investment management. Great. How many principles are there, Butch? There are four principles, and they're based on the spheres of influence of an insurance company. So principle one is about managing ESG or sustainability issues in your core business activities. So anywhere from setting your strategy to risk management, underwriting, sales and marketing, claims management, and investment. Principle two is uh, really about managing sustainability issues in the insurance industry value chain. If you are an insurance company, how are you dealing with this issue with your clients and with your suppliers, with brokers who are part of the value chain, with reinsurance companies who are also part of the value chain? Uh, Principle three is about engaging with uh, broader society. So how are you dealing with these issues with governments, with financial and insurance regulators, with civil society? And principle four is about accountability and transparency. Basically, you need to demonstrate how you're implementing the first three principles and be accountable for that in a public context as well. So when the uh, Financial Sector Commission on Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking looked at these issues a couple of years ago now before the FAST initiative emerged in that form, they identified, I think, these same areas that you've pointed to specifically in relation to the insurance sector's potential role in dealing with forced labour and modern slavery. So one was this question really of almost of financial inclusion that in particular low-income households' lack of access to insurance products could make them in moments of cash flow crisis because, say, they lacked access to healthcare insurance or they lacked access to natural disaster insurance and their crop was wiped out, that could lead them into the kinds of risky labour decisions or risky migration decisions that increase their vulnerability to trafficking. So it seems like this area around uh, access to insurance is is going to be one of the important ways into this discussion. Is that what you're seeing as well, Butch? Absolutely. So I think the operative word here is vulnerability. If you are vulnerable as a household, as a person, then the potential risk of human rights violations or forced labor probably becomes uh, higher. And so having a safety net and access to insurance could help reduce that risk. And so there is an opportunity here for the insurance industry to really reduce that risk by enabling people to have access to affordable um, insurance. Now, the other area in which the Financial Sector Commission saw potential for insurance engagement was more around what I guess you would call market access. So the kinds of insurance that allow businesses to enter and operate in markets in the first place. The idea there is that if connection to forced labour or modern slavery becomes a bar 
to accessing markets. That helps create an incentive for businesses to look for and address forced labor, labor trafficking, modern slavery in their own businesses or indeed in their supply chains. And we're beginning to see this kind of approach emerge now, for example, in the marine cargo area, where some actors have begun thinking about whether goods made with forced labor should be excluded from coverage in marine cargo policies if, for example, they're liable to be seized by customs authorities, as indeed they now are in the United States. Of course, that's one particular area, marine cargo insurance, but there are lots of different ways, whether it's directors or officers liability or other forms of business insurance, where the insurance markets have the potential to create incentives for businesses to be looking at risks, vulnerability, again, to forced labour, labour trafficking. Do you see potential for for that kind of engagement by the insurance industry as well, Butch? Certainly. So I think you bring up an interesting point here, James. So let's step back a bit and have a look at the basic notion and perception of insurance. So I would say a, a classic and traditional view is that if you're insured, that's good because then you're covered, right? However, there is this evolving thinking that we have seen through the work of the PSI and its members about the enabling role of insurance. So this then brings to light, what are you insuring, right? And how are you insuring? So if you are insuring, for example, things or in a way or assets or activities in a way that degrade the environment, that violate human rights, that puts a question mark on what you're doing. And so this enabling role has become more evident in the ESG and sustainability debate of insurance. And this has been an evolving agenda in finance, in responsible investment, in lending, but that has also now permeated the insurance space in a way that we're now looking not simply about having access to insurance, but also the enabling role. What is insurance enabling? Is it something that this is leading to positive impact or something that actually is leading to negative impact? So that's the first point. Secondly, you're correct. You know, forced labor risks and human rights uh, risks, be it uh, human trafficking or any form of modern slavery, is relevant to different lines of insurance business. But perhaps one way of looking at it is what are the different economic sectors out there where forced labor risks are becoming more apparent? And then these sectors, just like any form of finance, need investment, need lending, need insurance. And then you can extract that and say, this is how it's relevant to different lines of insurance business. So I mentioned that because until last year, there was no global ESG guide for the insurance business. And so thankfully, after a multi-year process by the PSI, led by the UN Environment Program and the Global Insurer Alliance, together with other leading insurance companies and organizations, we produced the first ever ESG guide 
to manage sustainability issues in the insurance business. And in that guide, James, we created basically a best practice guide for insurers to embed sustainability in their core business. And so this gives you a framework to understand how can you develop your ESG approach? What is your ESG risk appetite? How do you integrate ESG issues into your organization? What are the roles and responsibilities on ESG issues that you need to have? How do you escalate ESG risks that you detect in your transactions and to decision makers within your organization? How do you actually systematically and detect and analyze these issues? There's thousands, if not millions of insurance transactions out there. So how do you do that in a very systematic way and not just an ad hoc way? How do you then make decisions on these issues, whether you proceed, whether you question the transaction or you decline it, and then how do you report on these issues? So that guide gives any insurance company in the world a framework to say, here's how we're going to manage ESG risks and opportunities in a very systemic way so that uh, we are more effective and more efficient. And so that guide also as a optional heat map that an insurer can refer to. Optional because different insurers have different types of business, different jurisdictions. Um, So you can be a monoline insurer that's only doing motor insurance or a global insurer doing all lines of insurance. And you can operate uh, in one country or globally. So that is optional in that context. But in this ESG heat map, we basically highlighted different ESG issues and juxtaposed them with different in- industry sectors and different lines of insurance business and see how where there is potential risk, there's potential elevated risk, and there's a potential direct or high risk. And here, this has been a useful uh, tool for people. We have brought to life and unpacked environmental issues, social issues, and governance issues in a more granular and specific way so that an insurance company can be guided on this. So let me highlight some of the things that we saw and bring it in a human rights and forced labor risks context immediately. So in the context of human rights uh, violations, be it child labor, forced labor, or human trafficking, we found the following economic sectors to have a potential elevated risk or a potential direct or high risk vis-a-vis human rights risk. So these sectors are agriculture that could cover livestock, fishing, and forestry, electronics and technology, infrastructure and construction, garments, manufacturing, real estate, mining, and transport, shipping, and logistics. So as I mentioned earlier, these are economic sectors, and then these economic sectors uh, buy insurance. So let's translate that and see what did we see in our heat maps vis-a-vis different insurance lines of business. And this points to some of the things you mentioned earlier. And we saw that there is a potential elevated risk or potential direct or high risk in the following lines of insurance business. 
agriculture. It is a sector. It is also a line of insurance business. Construction and engineering insurance, credit and surety, directors and officers liability, mm. and marine insurance, not only cargo, but also uh, marine hull. So insurance for the vessel itself, particularly on specific issues. We also found out, for example, if we touch on marine, you mentioned marine cargo earlier. Let me touch something on marine hull. So what we're, we produce a guide with, the PSIs produce a guide with Oceana, an NGO, on how to prevent and reduce the risk of insuring vessels engaged in illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. And the reason for that is that it's one of the most destructive practices related to environment and the ocean, illegal and IU fishing for short. But what we've seen in that guide is that a lot of those vessels that are engaged in these practices are also associated with crimes like human trafficking. And so by preventing or reducing the risk of insuring vessels associated with these practices, it's not simply an environmental risk management agenda. It's also uh, preventing human rights violations. So you can see a broad suite of insurance lines of business there. And this is something that is emerging to be a key issue where I think it over time, people have assumed that this is implied in the way things are done. But if you really go into the nuts and bolts of the insurance business, I think there's a need for greater awareness and action on how insurance could enable activities that may have negative impacts on the environment and human rights. And so if you take that as an opportunity, how can we use insurance to be a champion that will protect the environment and respect human rights and human dignity? Absolutely. And it sounds, Butch, like the, that guy that you've just mentioned is uh, almost like the cheat codes for how the insurance industry can begin to disable these problematic business practices. So when you look forward, do you see that guide as a bit of a roadmap for the sectors and the insurance lines that the industry should be looking at to begin to address these issues? It is definitely an important framework to use, but we don't see it as an end in itself. So we would like it to be an evolving document because ESG and sustainability issues change over time. The way it manifests itself, the emerging good practices, what you can do, interpretation of conventions out there, be it the UN guiding principles on business and human rights or the different ILO conventions or the UN Declaration on Human Rights. You know, these things evolve over time. So we believe it is a helpful starting point. What we wanted to do was that we know that there are leading insurers and reinsurers out there who are really proactively addressing this issue as part of their sustainability risk framework. But in our view, that is the exception rather than the norm. And so this guy, if you are an insurance company and you don't know where to start, this is the guy to refer to. And so it raises the bar because then 
you have one less excuse of saying, I, we don't know where to start. Here's a good practice guide, and you can learn from what we've seen from leading companies around the world and use that as a basis. And you have the option to develop your own strategy. So we believe it's a very important framework, but in itself, it's not an end in itself and something that we can definitely build on. And that's the reason why uh, we wanted to bring sustainability a level that is really translatable into insurance business uh, because ESG is jargon, sustainability is jargon, could mean different things to different people. You need to apply that since we're talking about the insurance in an insurance context. And, you, and, and by default, you need to be specific on which ESG issues you're talking about and which lines of business and which industry sectors. And when you're able to do that, then you make it crystal clear to people of what you're trying to achieve. I guess the other factor I would overlay on top of that too, Butch, is geography of risk exposure. So we know that modern slavery as a risk is is fairly ubiquitous. It's present all over the world, but it's not homogeneous. So it's higher in certain sectors, as you were pointing to, and within those sectors, it's higher in certain places, certain countries, even certain Subnational contexts, certain communities, than it is in others. We know at the regional level that the absolute risk of modern slavery is highest in in Asia and in Africa. So, I guess a question for you is: Where is the insurance for for those regions written? Is it written in within those regions, or do you have global insurers? Uh, operating out of Europe or North America that are going to be covering businesses in, in those places where the risk exposure to modern slavery risk may be most immediate. And depending on that geography, how should that shape our thinking about engaging on these issues? That's an interesting point. The answer there is all of the above, right? So let's um, understand what is the insurance industry value chain, right? So there is an insurer, and then it, it can either write business directly, or it could be channeled by an intermediary that could be a broker, and that could be an agent. So an, a broker represents the client seeking insurance, and an agent represents an insurance company. Then an insurance company typically would need reinsurance arrangements so that it spreads the risk and uh, diversifies the risk. And then so that could go locally and that could go internationally. So to the international reinsurance market. And so you have domestic insurers which operate in a certain country only. You have insurers that operate regionally and you have global insurers and reinsurers. So that's the reason why it's all of the above because depending on the jurisdiction, it could be written by a local insurer or it written by a global insurer or it could be passed through a, a broker or there could be a global reinsurance arrangement around it. So that uh, risk could be underwritten in different ways, but that's an understanding of the value chain. And if you look at it like that, then the answer basically is, uh, it could be all of the above or one of the above, depending on the specific transaction. And normally the, the bigger the risks are, 
in terms of sums insured and, and premiums, the more that there is an access towards the global insurance and reinsurance markets. And then it's largely a, a capital and, and risk agenda, you know, and if it's a, a smaller risk, it could be absorbed by the local market more than what they call big or jumbo risks. Great. So clearly this is a complex conversation with lots of dimensions that need to be considered along quite a complex value chain. A lot of work to do on these issues in the years ahead, Butch. It sounds like we can count on PSI to be a, a champion of these issues moving forward. Is, is that a fair assumption? Yes. I mean, uh, that's the reason for being of the PSI. We are a... Um, initiative within the UN, human rights is core to the UN agenda. Every UN agency has that mandate. And it's also core to the PSI agenda in our work with the insurance industry. So there is a real agenda here. This is not simply an agenda for a specific group of companies. It's really for the entire global insurance industry. And and going back to your point earlier, James, what could be our strategy? So there are different actors with across the insurance industry value chain. Every country has an insurance association. Every country has an insurance regulator or supervisor. They have to be involved in this. It cannot simply be individual companies going together. There are market bodies across the world on insurance. There are insurance regulators and supervisors. They have to be involved in this agenda. Because the the markets can, obviously, the companies can do something voluntarily on their own, but there has to be an enabling framework out there also that enables them to address these issues in a more progressive way. And we believe that insurance associations and insurance regulators and supervisors have a key role to play as well on this and not just individual companies on their own. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for your time, Butch, and for the insights and the commitment you bring to these issues. We wish you every success in the months and years ahead advancing this agenda. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I think as uh, perhaps as a final point, uh, I just wanted to highlight that our work at the PSI on sustainability issues really would like to capture the full role of the insurance industry in sustainable development. That means the role of a risk manager, an insurer, and an investor. So when you're talking about sustainability issues, be it environmental issues like climate change or biodiversity loss or social issues like financial inclusion and human rights, there has to be cognitive consonance within an insurance company. That means You need to be consistent with your approach on sustainability as an insurer, as an investor, right? So even though the focus of our discussion today has been on insurance, the same thinking and the same approach should be applied to the way insurance companies invest. And so the agenda of respecting human rights and human dignity is something that the insurance industry should address across both sides of its balance sheet as an insurer and as an investor. And I think with that agenda, the PSI can certainly help. That also means the challenge and the opportunity for the insurance industry to be a real 
force for good and a champion of human rights is something that we can really unpack and cultivate in the coming years. Well said. Uchpakani, thank you very much. Thank you so much, James. On the next episode of Fast the Podcast, we'll pick up this theme of investing. How do we encourage investors not just to avoid investing in businesses that rely on forced labor, but also to actively support businesses that reduce vulnerability to modern slavery and human trafficking? How do we reduce the negative impact and increase the positive impact of investing on modern slavery outcomes? How, in other words, can we make modern slavery reduction a goal for impact investing? Join me next time on episode nine of Fast the Podcast to find out. In the meantime, visit us at fastinitiative.org, on Twitter at fincomslavery, or on LinkedIn's Fast Initiative profile. Please send us your feedback and suggestions by email to info at fastinitiative.org. And until next time, thanks for listening. This is a podcast recording by United Nations University Center for Policy Research. The views expressed are those of the speakers.